David, what's that sound? It's me winning, Daniel. Sounds like a lot of money's being made. This baby's paying out. I'm not ready to record the show right now. David, we gotta go. Come on. But Daniel, I'm, I'm winning. I'm gonna be able to pay off our fine if this keeps going. That $1 billion fine? Yeah. Uh, you're gonna be playing for a long time, I'm afraid. I'm gonna put it all on black. It'll be fine. You know, David, you know what's interesting? That we find ourselves here in this casino is that we're going to be talking about social media. Wow, that is a big coincidence, Daniel. Yeah, because social media actually has a lot in common with casinos. What? Tell me more. Well, you know, if you think about it, social media tries to get you hooked. And here we are in a casino and everywhere around us, we see things trying to suck us in and get our eyeballs on the machines. Get us hooked to these things, get us to throw our money away, get us to throw our time away. Well, I think you're leaving out the biggest similarity of all. What's that, David? All these cameras watching me right now. All the people surveilling everything I do right now. I mean, if that's not like social media, I don't know what is. You know, that is a good point. Nowhere do you get more surveilled than in a casino where so much money is at stake. But everything we do on social media, as we've talked about, is tracked. You open up the app, it's tracked. You send somebody a message, it's tracked. All to figure out the best way to track your behavior, shape your behavior. But isn't that what casinos are really designed to do? Shape our behavior to get a desired output? In this case, it's spend more money. Right, but maybe that's where the similarity ends because with social media, perhaps it just happens to be addicting, right? It's designed to be a tool to help us with something, whether that's connect with people or find events. And the fact that it's so addicting is probably just a side effect. Or is it? I'm David Torsivia. I'm Daniel Forkner. And this is Ashes, Ashes, a show about systemic issues, cracks in civilization, collapse of the environment, and if we're unlucky, the end of the world. But if we learn from all of this, maybe we can stop that. The world might be broken, but it doesn't have to be. And this week, the topic is addiction and social media. Damn, I turned my phone off and I'm literally picking it up to check it. Because <laughs> I'm like trying to look at the time <laughs> to see how it's going. Even though there's a clock in front of me, I'm quite literally picking up my phone, pressing the button, and then it's off. And I'm like, oh, wait, yeah, that's right. I turned my phone off. But here I am, like so programmed that I'm picking it up, checking it right now. This is, this is a problem, Daniel. I have a serious problem, even after following our recommendations of this show. Well, we're going to have some more recommendations for you at the end of this show, David. Um, it's going to be an intervention. Actually, this is why we're doing this show. It, it has nothing to do with the listener. We're not providing anything for the listener specifically, but this is for you, David. This is an intervention on your addictive habits related to your smartphone, and we are trying here to understand that and put a stop to it. I feel attacked, but I'm willing to listen. So let's, uh, let's get started. Well, since we're in a casino, we need to look at what is the most addicting part of any casino. Would you, what would you guess that is, David? Uh, the free drinks. <laughs> Dang it. I didn't think you'd actually come up with a better answer. No, it is the slot machine, David. There are more slot machines in the United States than there are ATM machines. And we spend more money on these negative money machines than movies, baseball, and theme parks combined. Yeah, but can a movie do this? Winning big, Daniel. I'm winning big. No, I guess... Uh, Actually, it, it, it ate all my money. I'm lying. Well, if you keep playing, David, I think you'll find out that at the end of the day, you'll have about 10% less money than you had when you started. Because, you see, slot machines are not quite so random. You see, actually, there are regulations on slot machines. In the United States, at least, every state varies a little bit in those regulations, but it averages around 90%. Uh, this is the regulated payout ratio. So at the end of the day, the house is going to take 10% of your money when you play the slot machine. So why do people play it? Why do people willingly sit down and spend more money on this machine than they do baseball or theme parks or movies when they know they're going to end up with less money than they started? Guaranteed. Well, I mean, Daniel, so the big draw of a casino, of the gambling, of playing slots blackjack, roulette, whatever it is, whatever your game is, is of course to draw the small chance that you could be the one that wins big. And that's why people come here in the first place. But I think the better question and what's relevant with this show is the question of, well, what keeps them staying? And what makes them pick this casino instead of another? 
And what that answer is, is design. The way these casinos are constructed, every single element is put together to draw you in and keep you there. Because the longer you stay in the casino, that 90% win rate, well, that means more and more money for the house. So casinos use all manners of keeping you inside. From the design of the area, the way the slot machines are laid out, the noises they make, the colors you interact with, the free drinks people bring by. Even some casinos have experimented with releasing certain types of smells in the gambling rooms. And the slot machines themselves, of course, employ a whole manner of tactics to get you to stay. So from the moment you sit down at a slot machine, it's designed to suck you in. There have been psychologists that have helped develop these things, and there's so many ways that it takes advantage of our very human vulnerabilities. You press a button, and you wait a couple seconds to see what reward you got. And that anticipation, coupled with the fact that you don't know if you're going to get a reward this time or the next time, well, it has an addicting quality to it. You play a slot machine in solitude, so it's harder for someone to pull you away. There are no breaks in the game. It's indefinitely continuous. So a person has to intentionally force themselves to quit. And there's so many lights and things going on that it becomes easy to lose yourself in the moment and forget about time, forget about your other obligations. And as we'll see, this might have some parallels to the very things that we carry around in our pockets with us every single day. And we mentioned that these slot machines are regulated. And that makes sense, right? I mean, we are literally giving this thing our money. So I think we can understand the need to apply a little bit of consumer protection on this thing that is designed to take advantage of us. But what about when these same tools that go into this slot machine, well, what happens when those same tools get applied to the devices that we use every day, which makes us throw our time away, our attention away, our privacy, and even control over our own lives. Daniel, I spend more time on my phone than I would like to. I'm the first to admit that. And that's why I have it off right now. So I'm not tempted to turn this on and get distracted in the middle of our recording of this episode. But I know I'm not alone in this. And I know that many people spend a lot of time on their phones. Some of it's on Facebook, some of it's mindlessly browsing Instagram, talking to friends, reading sites online, whatever your fix is. Uh, the phone probably has it for you somewhere in there. How about some numbers, Daniel? Sorry, David. I was actually checking my phone right now. I got <laughs> okay, God damn it. <laughs> um, but I know, and I know I was making fun of you a little bit at the beginning of this show, but this is actually an intervention for both of us. So I installed an app on my phone to track over the past couple of days how much I spent on my phone. And let's see, on Saturday, I picked my phone up 125 times. I think that's less than average, actually. On Monday, I picked it up 91 times. You're doing pretty good. Yeah, maybe I am. And so I was curious, what are these averages? And it turns out that the amount of time that we spend on our phones has increased dramatically over the past few years. It's more than doubled since 2013 alone. And the time we spend on web browsers has plummeted because we're spending more time within apps as opposed to just browsing the internet. About 15% of the apps we use are media and entertainment. These are things like Netflix. And an overwhelming 51% is spent in social media. Messaging apps are a mere 12%. And the raw hours we spend on our devices is actually pretty staggering. The most quoted figure is five hours a day on average. And other studies have found between two and a half to four hours. You know, those numbers right there remind me of old numbers uh, when they used to scaremonger families. Back when we were young and saying, oh, don't let your children watch TV all day. The average child watches TV four to five hours a day or some ridiculous made up stat like that. And well, here we are now with these phones, I guess, having usurped the position of the television in what dominates our time. Or if you're clever and multitask, you can do both at once. No, that's absolutely right. And as we'll see, it's not an equal substitution because there's a lot more going on under the hood of what is in our devices than a traditional television. Just a couple more stats. We touch our phones on average over 2,500 times per day, which includes clicks, swipes, taps. And we open our phones anywhere from 75 to 130 times each day. So you're right. I I was kind of right in the middle of that. And in one study, 87% of participants touched their phones at least one time between midnight and 5 a.m. And all these stats don't include data on the time spent on our phones when they are locked. Like when we change our music, we check our notifications, and other things that we can do without unlocking the phone itself. Okay, so it's really clear at this point 
that we spend a lot of time with our phones, with these devices. And it's clear that we check these things basically constantly all throughout the day. But is this necessarily a bad thing? I mean, I get a lot of useful information out of my phone. I learn a lot of things. I read a lot of articles. So is the mere act of checking this all the time, of looking into it, necessarily a bad thing? Well, I think that's something that we're going to figure out as we go through this show. And it really comes down to what you said at the beginning of the show about casinos, which is the addiction is in the design. And when we look at our phones and our social media apps, we find that the same things that go into making a casino addicting are going into the devices that we use. In fact, Sean Parker, the co-founder of Napster and one of the early presidents of Facebook, admitted not long ago that making Facebook addicting was the goal from the very start. He said, quote, the thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? It's a social validation feedback loop, exactly the kind of thing that a hacker like myself would come up with, because you are exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology, end quote. And Tristan Harris, who worked at Google and became Google's first chief ethicist when he started talking about the dangers of technology on our behaviors, well, he has come out against the addictive nature of technology, and he explains how it is used against us, against our very human vulnerability, weaknesses in the human mind, and the limits to our perception, so that we can be influenced without even knowing it. Okay, so when you talk about phrases like exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology, or concepts like hacking our brain to get attention, I mean, this is very alarming stuff. You'd think this is the kind of things that these tech CEOs would look at and be like, well, I don't want to be responsible for this, even if it maybe does make me some money. I mean, this is like something I'm concerned about for I know myself and for others. And in fact, some of them have basically come out with this, though only to the point where saying, I'm concerned about my own interactions with this technology and the interactions of my loved ones, but I'm not enough to actually make a movement where I'm going to impact my bottom line. There are some surprising examples of this. So Tim Cook, the current CEO of Apple, has stated that he doesn't believe in the overuse of technology, and he puts strict boundaries on the use of technology for his nephew. There are simply some things that he won't allow his nephew to do, such as get on social network. And Steve Jobs, the CEO of Apple before him, well, in 2010, when the very first iPad was launched, Steve Jobs admitted to a journalist that he didn't allow his children to own one and that he limited the use of technology available to his kids. Many other tech entrepreneurs and tech CEOs place strict limits on the use of technology in their households. Evan Williams, the former CEO of Twitter and founder of Blogger and Medium, doesn't allow his kids to own iPads either. Another former Twitter CEO only permits his family to use screens in the living room and nowhere else. CEO of 3D Robotics, Chris Anderson, sets time limits on every device and won't permit his children to use any screen in their bedrooms. Others limit tech use to 30 minutes a day on the weekend and none during the week. I'm starting to see a pattern here, Daniel. Yeah, but you know, it's not just the tech entrepreneurs that are concerned about the way technology interacts with their kids, but perhaps it's alarming from the viewpoint that they know the most about how this technology works. And if they are alarmed, well, that means that something is going on, right? And I mean, I guess all of us kind of have a sense that overuse of social media and devices must be having some kind of negative effect on us. There was a survey done of parents and 94% of them said that they try to do at least something to limit the use of technology for their kids, at least during the school year. And that could be anything from limiting the use at the dinner table or, you know, not letting children use their device after a certain hour at night before they go to bed. And more than half of parents say that they worry about how this technology is affecting the mental and physical health of their children. So it's something we're all concerned about. But again, I think we don't understand fully the intent that goes behind this addiction. I mean, I think it's one thing to say that here's a tool that we use and it's good to use it in moderation. But like anything, you don't want to overuse it. But it's another thing to say that the reason it's addicting in the first place is because the programmers and the entrepreneurs behind creating it built it from the ground up to take advantage of our deepest vulnerabilities and weaknesses. That's a great jumping off point to maybe look at exactly what some of these weaknesses are and of how these devices, apps, and social networks are really, quite honestly, designed to be addicting. 
And maybe before we can look at exactly how these are designed, we need to look at the mechanism that these things exploit. And there's a couple different behavior models that psychologists and neurologists have come across and basically sold to Silicon Valley in order to hack our mind. And one of these is the fog behavior model. And it's basically broken down into three elements. So motivation, prompts, and the ability to do something. When you add these up together and you trigger them in the right way, then you can affect behavior. So he makes this into an equation. B equals M-A-P. B being the behavior that I want and M-A-P being the motivation of my user, the ability for them to do something, and then... And then the prompt. Or the trigger that combines its motivation and ability to result in a choice, a decision, or an action. Turning a very simple idea into a complicated equation. But to break it down into a very obvious example, you go to Facebook. There's a red notification icon on the top. So let's look at this MAP here. So one, the motivation. I want to see what is behind that red icon. I want to see who liked my photo. So you have the prompt. The red icon itself says, look at me. There's something to click on here. The ability, the A. It's really easy to click on that, David. It's, 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 it's sitting there. It's red. It's glowing. It says, please, please click on me. And make no mistake, that red color was chosen for a reason. So, okay, so now well, we've got MAP, we've got the motivation, the prompt, and the ability to do something. And, well, you know, we're simple animals. We're going to do it. We click on it. That's the behavior. Oh, it just says that uh, a friend posted a photo that I don't care about. That's a bummer. Okay. But David, it's not enough to just have a notification somewhere. I mean, there's a reason someone is opening the app to begin with. And so going back to the casino, I mean, there's a lot of similarity between that slot machine and an app like Facebook. So even right when you open the app, before you have even seen the newsfeed, before you have seen any notifications, there's something going on. And that's that it takes a couple seconds for Facebook to load. And you might think that's because it's got algorithms to shift through or processing power. But in fact, this is intentional. See, programmers have learned to build what are now known as artificial waiting time into web pages and apps for a number of reasons. One programmer admitted to implementing a delay in the results for a loan application app because when it returned results as fast as it could, well, people didn't believe the app was authentic. So a delay in the results gave people the perception of credibility. The one that always bothers me, Daniel, is whenever I'm trying to like look up cheap plane tickets and I put in my departure airport, I put my destination, whatever. And then it, you know, it does that thing where it's like, oh, it's searching all available flights. And it like <laughs> loads it like slowly over the course of like 30 seconds. And I'm sitting there waiting. It. Maybe an icon comes up where it's like a plane. Yeah, the plane like you know, takes like off circling and soars around. across and it's like a little stupid game. I have to sit there and watch. Loading, loading. Yeah, it's not. It's just sending a search quest out that takes very little time to query all this stuff. Basically instantaneous. More or less. And it's definitely not enough that I have to sit here for two minutes to finish its fake deal finding. It's such a waste at time. Maybe the programmer can't exactly be blamed for that because there were examples where when apps like that, whether that's that loan application or it's personalized deals, well, people just thought it was fake. They said there's no way something can return results that quickly. It must be pre-generated. But these artificial waiting times programmers have figured out is very important to making something more addictive. You see, Instagram and Twitter both have intentional delays when you open the apps before they display their news feeds. And it's part of this slot machine effect. I mean, if you think about an old time slot machine, David, you pull the lever and then the numbers or the pictures, they go around and round in circles until it finally comes to a stop. And that makes sense mechanically if something has wound up and now it's got to go through its cycle. But nowadays, slot machines are all digital. So there's really no need at all for this waiting period. But yet they still do it. You push the button, and although the machine could give you an instant result, it adds the delay. And that is intentional. It's to give you a sense of anticipation. And the anticipation is what makes the following event so much more powerful. And that is variable rewards. So these variable rewards is a basic concept. Every time you pull that slot machine lever, you don't know if you're going to win or not. You hope you make the jackpot, but you don't know. The fun is in the waiting and seeing. The same thing applies every time we pick up our phone. If you have it on silent and you pick it up, you hit the button. Ooh, is there a notification? Did it get a like on my Instagram? Whatever it is, it's fun. You get to see. Oh, oh wait, no, there's nothing there. Well, it's okay. You know, I'll open up Instagram itself. Maybe there's something good there. Uh, uh, nope. I'm just going to scroll through these pictures. And as I scroll, I'm quite literally digitally recreating the experience of spinning a slot machine. Going down, hoping I strike jackpot. Whether that's a great piece of art 
picture that I'm like, ooh, look at this. Whatever it is, I don't know if it's going to be there or not. Sometimes it is, and when it is, I get that dopamine hit. That's the reward, the variable, unpredictable reward. But most often, there's nothing there. But I keep scrolling, and the feed keeps going, because that's another one of these components of addiction, the continuous scroll. Or the continuous swipe. I mean, if you think about apps like Tinder or dating apps where you keep swiping to the left or right, swipe, swipe, swipe. Oh, there's a match. Jackpot. Mine's more like match, match, match. (laughs) Well, then I'm guessing, David, you don't go on dating apps very much. That must not be very addicting. No, I'm I'm addicted to uh, getting my match number as high as I can. Top score, baby. Well, David, you're definitely an anomaly. You're an exception to the rule. Because being unpredictable is so important. If you think about a slot machine, you know you're going to lose money. But because you don't know exactly how it's going to happen, you keep coming back. But if I designed a slot machine that was guaranteed to return 100.001% of your money, but every time you hit the button, you got the exact same payout, even though you're going to walk away with more money than you ever would from the traditional slot machine, you simply would not play it. But you know, you brought up something else, David, which is the streak. And this is another component of our apps and our digital technologies that make them addicting. And that's turning everything into a game or gamification. And probably the worst example of this is Snapchat. Yeah, Daniel, one of the best examples of this gamification is what the Snapchat developers have done with the streaks. So if you've ever used Snapchat, and if you haven't, I'm going to describe it to you because it is a awful trash can of an app. But uh, so you open it up, you talk to your friends, you send them messages, you chats, whatever. And some certain select friends get little emojis next to their name. Depending on how often, how frequently, and how much you message these people, they get little trophies in the form of emojis. There's a heart for your best friend. There's fires for somebody that you're talking to frequently. And the more days that you speak to somebody and they speak back to you, you add to this streak, this flame emoji streak. And as you go farther and farther without breaking this streak, you get better emojis and and you get promoted basically in this emoji streak game where you get tiny little trophies next to this person's name that shows how dedicated you are to this app. But at the same time, this is rewarding you for forming a habit, building an addiction of using this app, of messaging this particular person, of constantly being open in the map and getting their monthly active users and the amount of time people spend in their apps as high as they can for their investors, for their advertisers, etc. That single feature has been so addicting for some people, for teenagers and children, that they have actually given their password and account information to other friends so that they can keep their streak alive when they go on vacation or otherwise don't have access to their account. And speaking about friends, I mean, what is social media all about at the end of the day? It's about connecting with other people. Allegedly. Right. But the programmers have figured out how to take advantage of our biggest vulnerability. And that's that we desire connection with other human beings. We desire approval. And if you'll notice things about Facebook, and other social media sites is that it makes it very easy to send approval for someone and very hard to send disapproval. For instance, there is a like button on Facebook, but there is no dislike button. Despite all the petitions I've signed. David, if you want to make more friends like this, we we talked about this, you got to show a little (laughs) bit more, you got to be less negative. No, the old school Facebook poke, that's, that's where it's at. That one was a little bit hard to interpret. Which is probably why they got rid of it. I think they changed it. It's wave now, I think. You can wave at someone. Yeah, anyway. (laughs) But these platforms, they provide this illusion of engagement by making it quick, effortless, and sometimes automatic to interact with others. But because we are isolated from each other in these interactions, the impact that we feel often far exceeds the initial interaction. For example, if I look at someone's Instagram story, like yours, David, Well, you're going to get a notification at some point that I looked at your story and you can see me on a list of people that viewed it. Mm -hmm. And in your mind, you might envision that interaction. You might envision how I reacted to your picture. No. What might have gone through my mind? How long I looked at it? I know it was a while. But in reality, I could put my phone face down on a table and Instagram will automatically cycle through the stories of all my connections. So I don't even have to watch it for you to get that sense that I interacted with you and engaged with you. And all this creates the illusion of connection. Yeah, that's what we have. The illusion of connection. (laughs) David, your streak is in jeopardy. No, but more than anything here, Daniel, what I recognize is when you don't watch my story, 
when your name is conspicuously absent from the people that viewed my 15 seconds of fame on my Instagram story. And that's because the other half of social vulnerability is reciprocity. It's not just enough for me to go out and interact with somebody else. I need you to come and interact with me as well. Even if that only means your name is sitting there on the bottom of a list saying you watched what I put out into the world. And there's a lot more tools that are going on to try and get us hooked on these things. You mentioned the fear of missing out, David. Mm -hmm. And digital technology services and apps are really great at making us feel is that we will miss out on something important if we don't stay updated. It's common to hear people say they don't like the impact Facebook has on their lives. But the idea of eradicating that is unthinkable precisely for this reason. Because what if we miss out on something important that has happened to a friend we barely know? What if we miss an event invitation? What if someone has a baby and we don't find out? A baby, Daniel. I mean, like, this is, I think, one of the highlights of this, just how ridiculous we've gotten about social media, where like- Well, you know, Facebook is like intentionally, you know, they came out with that announcement. Hey, we're going to prioritize the things that matter most, like big events. Like if someone has a baby or they get married, we're going to make sure you see that. And we've talked about this in the past when like trigger words like congratulations pop up, you get higher in that Facebook news feed because of this. Exactly. But like, come, if I have to find out you have a baby through a push notification on my app, I mean, like, we aren't really friends. You're like distant acquaintances at best. Come on. And that's kind of the point that these push notifications, the way we're always getting notifications about all these different things. You see, you go on Facebook and it used to be you got notified when someone directly interacted with you. They posted on your wall. They mentioned you. But now you go on and you get notifications for literally the most random thing you can think of. Like, oh, I'm gonna go on Facebook right now. Let's see. Let's see what I got here. I, I don't like never post to Facebook. See if I even have a notification. So it's loading. It's doing a very slow, dramatic load. You're spinning the slot wheel. I hope I have a notification. This is going to be really embarrassing if there's nothing. There's nothing here. I have nothing. Oh, well, this was a bad example. Cut this out. This is embarrassing. Well, that's the variable reward, David, right? You open it this time, well, you don't get something. Yeah. But earlier, it told me some people that I sort of know are going to events that are nearby me tomorrow. And when I click on it, they're in like different states. So good, good job, Facebook. Well, exactly. That's the whole point is that that notification right there telling you, hey, you have acquaintances that are going to an event. We just updated you. We kept you in the loop. You would have missed out on this important information if we hadn't pushed it to you. It adds to this idea, this fear that, oh, if I don't keep checking this thing, if I don't keep it in front of me 150 times a day, I might miss something. But like, like you pointed out, some of these things that we think we're missing, well, the fact that we have to rely on something like Facebook to tell us maybe tells us something about um, our actual relationships. Right. Let's briefly look at these notifications and the effect they're having on us. So notifications are the most visible component of any of these addictive processes in these apps because they're the things that draw us into the applications in the first place. You're much less likely to open Instagram, WhatsApp, Facebook, whatever, if you aren't getting a little pop up that says, hey, open up Instagram, Facebook, whatever, there's something maybe here for you to see. And this has dramatic effects on our behavior. So there was a paper carried out by Carnegie Mellon University and a Spanish research organization between 2015 and 2017, which studied the effects of notifications on participants' levels of stress, social connectivity, and other indicators of mental health. And so what the study did is it took a handful of participants and it asked them to disable all notifications for 24 hours. And the next day, they asked them about their stress levels, how other people perceived them, how they felt socially connected to other people. And to be clear, this wasn't saying they aren't allowed to use these apps or check their phone, just that the notifications for these applications had to be turned off. That's it. And it had some effects on people's stress. Participants worried more during this day that they might be missing out on important information. And as a result, they were more likely to check their phones manually. But then other participants reported a lower level of stress and anxiety and even feelings of relaxation and liberation. And that's likely because with these notifications, there's two competing sources of stress. On the one hand, we have the stress that is induced by receiving a notification which interrupts us, which makes us stop what we're doing to see what we missed. We might feel like we have to respond immediately, and this raises our cortisol levels. But on the other hand, is the stress associated with the fear 
that you may be missing out on something. So getting rid of notifications lowers the stress that we experience from the interruptions, but it can raise the stress we feel associated with not responding to people when we think we are expected to. One of the biggest results of this study is that participants became aware of exactly how these notifications were affecting them. So feeling this two sides of stress, but also realizing that they could survive without it. And so many of these participants became aware of the benefits of enabling the so-called do not disturb mode on their phone for the periods of time that they actually need to focus. And there were a number of participants who decided that, hey, even though this study has concluded, I want to go forward with different settings on my notifications so that I'm only notified on the things that are most important to me. And in fact, these new habits, well, they stuck around. So two years later, when researchers came back to check in on those who decided that they were going to adjust their notification settings, 60% of them had followed through and continued using these modified notifications. And so at least what this research seems to suggest is that these push notifications drive mobile phone use, at least for a lot of it. And it can cause people to halt their activities to respond immediately to these things that pop up on their screens. And this has effects, obviously, on our attention. So some researchers decided to do basically the opposite of the study we just talked about. And instead of cutting out all these notifications, they decided instead for their participants to maximize them. Nice. Turn on as many possible notifications as you can find on your phone. Just endless notifications buzzing constantly all the time, filling up every single moment. And of course, what does this do? Well, the participants in the study had much higher levels of inattention and hyperactivity, or basically the same symptoms as ADHD. In these studies, they looked at a handful of participants, but the American Psychological Association surveyed over 3,500 adults in the U.S. in 2016, and they found that those who constantly check their devices, their email, their texts, and social media, they have higher levels of stress than those who don't. Okay, so let's hold up, take a step back, my favorite phrase, and look at this here, because we're not really breaking any new ground with this conversation, Daniel. Like, maybe we pointed out some of these addictive mechanisms that app designers use to manipulate us, but we all know that social media is addicting. We all know that it has negative effects on us because we can feel it. We can see it in our friends. We all know that phone addictive friend. And I mean, what are we saying here that's really that interesting? What's the point of all of this? David, I think the significance of this, so we've talked about how these devices can be addicting. We've talked about how they have negative effects on us. And I suppose people could say, well, what is the big deal after all? I mean, these are tools they are supposed to benefit our lives. So what if we overuse them sometimes? But I think the point that we have to make here is that having strong habits by themselves, that's not necessarily bad or good. That could be a great thing. If you habitually brush your teeth after every meal, well, that might be a good thing for you. If you habitually get good sleep, that's going to give you benefits. And so if we are addicted to our phones, if we're addicted to social media, but it translates into positive results, positive consequences and benefits for us individually and as a society, that would be fine. But as we see with these notifications and the effects it has on our worry, on our stress, anxiety, our mental health, we're not exactly benefiting from the overuse of these devices. And as we'll see, this is really just the tip of the iceberg. Exactly, Daniel. The tip of the iceberg. I like that phrase. So let's see what lies beneath these murky depths. The future of addiction, and this is where the episode I think gets compelling for me, isn't in the continued deployment of these tactics that we've discussed so far. Things like notifications, continuous scrolling, whatever, these mainstays of app design at the moment. So those are going to be components of addiction continuously. But the future of addiction, the future of design and addiction, is the deployment of customized behavior modification. And this is where companies like Dopamine Labs, now called Boundless Mind, come onto the scene. So this is a company in Silicon Valley who has a neuroscientist on their team helping these programmers come up with algorithms that can learn from a user's behavior, figure out when they are engaged, when they're not engaged, and then batch rewards that it can send to the user to keep them on this particular service. So they sell this service to any app that will buy it. You have a fitness app and you want people to be more engaged. You can buy their algorithms, which will run in the background and figure out how to get those users coming back to the service. And I think this really highlights the intent behind the design and the technology of these devices, because the goal is to increase usage across the app 
not just drive specific actions like purchases. They do this by experimenting on every single individual with this artificial intelligence. And Instagram is an example of this. You know, it's weird to think of a social media app as a laboratory. But really, because of these customized AIs, that's what they become. And we are the lab rats in them. I mean, there's always the joke about if you aren't paying for the product, then you are the product. Well, not only are we the product at this point, but we become the very test animals that they use to modify and improve their product. That is our behavior, our likelihood to click on ads. Well, constantly. It's unusual. So, I mean, Instagram, right? It's very simple of an app. You open it up. There are pictures there. You scroll through. You like photos. And you also post photos. People like it. Yay, everyone wins. We're triggering our dopamine, yeah? Simple, right? Well, it's not well optimized for modifying our behavior to click on those ads to open it as much as possible to see as many of those ads as we can. Enter modifying AI. Customized Instagram experience. Are you saying I'm looking at pictures that were posted by artificial intelligence, David? Not quite. I mean, these are real photos. Your friends did post them. But your bespoke Instagram experience, if you will, you know, I'm getting my little advertising chops out here, is customized by an artificial intelligence who has analyzed the thousands of interactions you've had with Instagram over the lifetime of your account, has analyzed thousands, tens of thousands, millions of people who are similar to you in some way, and it has tested all sorts of different ways of interacting the app with you. Which pictures should come first? Which friends should be the top of the list? When do I notify you that a friend is posted? What friends do I notify you liked your photos? What order? What time? When do these notifications pop up? Which friend's story do we show first? What's the order of the stories? All these things lay into a very customized, designed experience to maximize your interaction with the Instagram feed. And the more times they can give you that payoff, that feeling of reward because they got the combination right, the more times you're going to open up Instagram looking for that dopamine hit. And that means dollars at the end of the day. This is the unpredictability, the variable reward system that we talked about that you find in slot machines where you open the app and you don't know what you're going to get. Sometimes it could be 20 likes. Sometimes it could be zero. And this is what is so crazy to me to think that if I'm on Instagram and someone likes my photo The app may decide not even to tell me that at that moment because it knows I'm already engaged. It's going to wait until it thinks that I have a gap in my interest. And then it's going to batch these likes that I've received over the past however many minutes or hours. It's going to give them to me doled out for maximum engagement. So like Daniel said, this is where the story gets interesting because no longer are we dealing simply with mechanisms of addiction designed by programmers with maybe a single ethics class under their belt, but instead we are handing control of these tools, which we know hack our brains, to AI with the single goal of maximizing our monetary value. If you look at Boundless AI's marketing material, they actually say just that. In one of the pamphlets highlighting some of their case studies, they say, quote, Variable reinforcement glues our behaviors in place. It is the code the brain's habit machinery runs on. It's also optimizable, personalizable, and adaptable. That's what Boundless AI does. Our artificial intelligence optimizes reinforcement to predictably increase habit formation. End quote. And so Anderson Cooper on 60 Minutes actually highlighted this company in one of their reports. And he asks the co-founder of this company, he says, so you're trying to figure out how to get people coming back? And this is what the co-founder says, quote, when should I make you feel a little extra awesome to get you to come back into the app longer? Why that moment? There's some algorithm somewhere that predicted, hey, for this user right now, who's experimental subject 793B and experiment 231, we think we can see an improvement in his behavior if you give it to him in this burst instead of that burst. You're part of a controlled set of experiments that are happening in real time across you and millions of other people. You're guinea pigs in the box pushing the button and sometimes getting the likes, and they're doing this to keep you in there. End quote. You gotta be bold to like go on 60 Minutes like advertising basically your company. Like this is what he does professionally and be like, yeah, you know, we're just turning you into experiments and uh, we're like manipulating you to keep you in a box. But I guess it works. And I guess some of these like tech psycho CEOs will read this and be like, yeah, dude, this sounds awesome. Let me sign you up. Let's get on this boundless mind train. 
It's a pretty damning thing to say, David, from the perspective of us, the users of these services. But I don't think it's particularly brave because I, I think it's actually how this person is getting more business. Because this is what companies want. They want entrepreneurs figuring out how to hack us, how to hack our brains to what is it? To optimize reinforcement, to predictably increase habit formation. I mean, that's what investors want. They want to know that they can grow something at a predictable rate at 10% a year or something like that. So as angry as we may be, David, there's so much money to be made off of keeping us glued to these screens that perhaps it's not going away. Real quick, uh, a listener sent us a comment on the last episode. Our favorite listener. Shout out to you. You know who you are. Thank you for your work all the time. We really appreciate you. Do we have to say favorite listener? I don't want any other listener to feel like they're left out. Just so you know, you're all our favorite listeners. Some are just more favorite than others. Um, And this listener said, hearing you speak of imagining alternatives makes me wonder how much potential was lost among millennials thanks to popular entertainment services. I don't just mean consumption of entertainment itself, but also the means by which it's consumed. I grew up playing in arcades and trading CDs with friends. Today, video game addiction and Netflix binges can be uniquely isolating. Imagine a future where generative AI produces hyper-addictive entertainment tailor-made to individuals at scale. End quote. But David, as we see now, this is not the realm of imagination. This is happening right now. The effects of these algorithms working to addict us to our devices, they're isolating us at the same time they're exploiting our social vulnerabilities, widening the gaps between us while dangling the carrot of human connection in front of us. But the more we reach for it, the more difficult it becomes to obtain. It's a mirage that leads us further and further into a desert of loneliness, stress, and fatigue. But David, we have to take a step back because maybe we're being a little dramatic and... Us? No. Yeah, not us at Ashes Ashes. But I think there's going to be people out there who are going to be quick to point out, look, obviously a company is going to try and get you to use their thing. That's what they do. That's how they make money. But we as the consumer, we have the choice to use it, to not use it, to limit our consumption, to overconsume. And so really, what is the big deal? I mean, we live in the age of information, right, David? This is the age of infinite choices. It's the age of the sixth mass extinction. Please don't remind me. I'm trying to trying to have a good day. No, David. continue on, your no. spiel. All right. Well, beyond that, the world is our oyster. <laughs> <laughs> <Damn it. laughs> um, with so much information at our fingertips, we can be anything we want, right? But see, we find something a little bit disingenuous going on behind the scenes. Because in this landscape of seemingly infinite choice, our reliance on our smartphones and our apps has made us vulnerable to programmers who limit our choices without our realizing. And the result is that our reality gets framed in terms that benefit companies and not ourselves. So while we think we have free choice and that we make rational decisions about our options, we're really at a disadvantage. And this happens in a number of ways. First, in any given situation, the very existence of options that are presented by our devices narrows our frame of reference to just the options that we see. Second, the options themselves often hide information that would be relevant to our decision-making process, which can, as always, lead to regret and poor choice. And Tristan Harris, that former chief ethicist at Google, he has- Which, by the way, is a made-up job that Google created specifically because Tristan circulated this deck that is like a, a PowerPoint presentation of information about how addictive the things that Google was creating were and, and how they needed to be more responsible about it. And this caught fire within Google and people were like very uh, up in arms and excited about it. So to quell this notion that we're doing something bad, they created this position specifically for Tristan Harris, the first chief ethicist of the company. Uh, And he felt that he couldn't do very much there, so he moved on after a short time. But he has a great example of how these choices frame our reality. So let's say you're out with a group of friends one evening, and you all decide that you want to find a place to relax and talk. So very naturally, everyone in the group pulls their phones out. They immediately open the Yelp app or the Map app or whatever to see what bars are around. They compare the pictures and reviews and pick a bar to go to. Now, what's important about this is how the initial goal, that question, where should we go to relax and talk, gets immediately transformed into which bar on this list looks most appealing based on pictures. And it's a subtle difference, but it is very important. And because of this reframing, 
this subtle shift of goals. The group won't notice that across the street is a park with live music, or that around the corner is an art gallery open for a late night show serving wine and snacks. Things that would be perfect for relaxing and talking, but weren't on that list of options when they opened the phone. The fact that we can find so many choices through our devices has given us the illusion that these devices are the best places for those options in the first place. And so we are now at risk of missing all the available choices that exist outside these tailored lists and apps. And the result is that we often choose the very things that serve the interests of these businesses and corporations at the expense of perhaps something better. We see this play out in our real physical world as well, and some of the design choices made in places like casinos or for a place that more of us interact with, grocery stores. The story in design always goes, people come to a grocery store predominantly for milk or to visit the pharmacy. But if you put these things at the back of the store, so you have to walk all the way past all these aisles of delicious food and snacks and vegetables and fruits and cereals and drinks and whatever then you're going to pick some of those up along the way. Remember, oh, I'm hungry. I need to grab this food. I'm going to load up a cart while I'm here. Even though you only showed up for milk, you pick up all these other options along the way. This is manipulating your behavior through this design. And of course, the second way that these options affect us is that these choices themselves are, well, misleading. These options presented to us in our apps and other digital technologies are misleading intentionally when they hide the costs associated with these choices. And to clarify, choices could be, do I click or do I not? Do I even open the Facebook app in the first place? Do I keep scrolling or do I close the app and do something else? I mean, for example, Facebook sends you a notification to view a single image, but it doesn't tell you that it's probably going to result in a 15 minute time cost since odds are you're probably not going to stop at just that one image. Or maybe the app sends you an event notification, but it doesn't tell you that in order to view the event, you'll have to stop by the news feed first, which that's another time sink, and next thing you know, you've been on the website for 10 minutes. These choices, the way these choices are framed, it doesn't directly relate to this addiction problem, but it's related in the fact that the choices themselves make us more dependent on the devices. And that in turn drives us to use the devices more often, which opens up more opportunities for these algorithms to take advantage of us to get us hooked. I mean, for example, David, I don't use Twitter. I barely ever go on it. Uh, But in researching for this show, I came across the concept of artificial waiting that we talked about earlier. And I was curious. I wanted to know if this really happened. So It was late at night, I was about to go to bed, and I decided to open the Twitter app on my phone to see if there really was a two, three second delay. And sure enough, there was. But the story doesn't end there, David. I'm on the edge of my seat. Keep going, Daniel. Yeah, the story actually ends 10 minutes later after I forced myself out of the app that I haven't used in forever. I thought that was going to go somewhere else. And you know, beyond that, when I was a kid, I remember I would go over to my friend's house every day after school, and we would always find very fun and creative ways to hang out. For example, there were many games we'd play that began by retrieving every couch cushion in the house and stacking them up into a giant fort. And from there, we could invent all kinds of different games. And I bring this up because it made me a little sad to realize that today I don't really engage this type of creativity and imagination when it comes to my friends and the activities that we do. The question, how can we have fun today, becomes, well, which games are on the computer right now? Or what activities are shown when we pull up the map? Or let's Google the top 10 hiking places in the area. Look, I know there's a lot of counter arguments to these things. Like, we're just bringing this up. Addiction is bad. These things have negative effects on your health, on your attention span, on your stress levels. Like, yes, this is obvious, but lots of people make counter arguments. Uh, the most common one that I'm guilty of this, I know, is, well, you know, I'm just waiting on something. I'm waiting in line. That's why I'm looking at my phone right now. I checked it for 20 seconds, you know, whatever, that's it. But when did it become a mandate that every moment of our free time needs to be filled with something? We spent so much of human history with idle time and allowing our minds to wander, and experiencing the creativity and joy that comes along that. Just like you mentioned building forts, exploring new things to do, Daniel. It's valuable for our mind to be able to just sit for a moment. It doesn't need to be constantly filled with endlessly scrolling news feeds, Facebook feeds, Twitter feeds, Instagram, whatever, and instead just observe the moment. To sit there and think about the things that are running through your head, and that's okay. I'm so guilty of this. I was trying to take note in preparation for the show of every time I became distracted with my phone. 
And I would notice the craziest things. Like I went to go make coffee the other day and my coffee machine, it takes like 20 seconds to drip. As the coffee is dripping and I'm standing there, I get my phone out. I'm like, oh, I need to check something. And I, you know, check my thing or what's the update over here? That's just the craziest thing. It's exactly what you're talking about. I I have this brief moment in time where I'm not necessarily going to be doing anything. So I automatically think I got to fill it with content. Exactly. And this leads me to another comment we hear all the time. Like, well, what do I care about my attention? I'm getting something out of this. I'm getting the dopamine hit. So like, well, you know, it's, it's a net good. But like so many addictive habits, small amounts of hitting dopamine pleasures can spiral into larger and larger addictions. And you can lose so much of your attention, so much of your time to these applications, to these endless news feeds that return ultimately nothing of value back to you. This impacts your time with loved ones, your sleep, your work, and the sense that our lives are in order and maybe even goals and priorities. Well, you mentioned that these things are supposed to give us benefits. And I think that's the ultimate problem of all this is that we think our smartphones, our devices and our apps that they're just tools that we can use to empower our lives and to serve us. Apps to help us increase our productivity, apps to entertain us, to help us connect with people. But when we look under the hood, we see that more often than not, these tools are not serving us. They are shaping and influencing us intentionally for the benefit of those making profit off our eyeballs. They don't work for us, we work for them. And people like Tristan Harris, they are important voices highlighting some of the insidious things going on in the design of these things. But more often than not, they advocate for some kind of top-down change. You know, Tristan Harris says, look, Apple needs to fix this problem. It's too much to ask us as consumers to change our habits. Apple, Google, all these services, they need to be more responsible in the way that they allow us to interact with their technology and the way they push information to us and frame the things that we see. But I wonder if there's a lot of hope in some very systemic top-down change from these corporations. I have zero faith in this. I'm going to be completely honest. Well, let's look at a quick example, David. Let's look at the children. Not the children. So in January of this year, two investors in Apple, a hedge fund and a pension system, with a combined $2 billion ownership stake, sent a letter to the company urging Apple to consider the negative effects that technology is having on childhood development. And before we go on, you know, I think it's important to point out that these institutional investors calling out Apple for the negative effects of its technology on children, it's unlikely that this is purely for altruistic reasons. Institutional investors call companies out because they want better returns on their money. This technology problem is so bad, it's so broad, and it affects so many of us that investors are concerned the harm being done to society will hurt the bottom line. We have reviewed the evidence, and we believe there is a clear need for Apple to offer parents more choices and tools to help them ensure that young consumers are using your products in an optimal manner. We believe that addressing this issue now will enhance long-term value for all shareholders by creating more choices and options for your customers today and helping to protect the next generation of leaders, innovators, and customers tomorrow. And imagine the goodwill Apple can generate with parents by partnering with them in this effort and with the next generation of customers by offering their parents more options to protect their health and well-being. That was fun to read. So clearly the investors are concerned about profit at the end of the day. But the letter does cite a handful of research pointing to the fact that Apple products and the apps inside them are having negative consequences on children. So who knows children better than their teachers? Maybe no one. And that's why the University of Alberta asked 2,300 teachers a number of questions about their students. 67% of teachers said that the number of children distracted in class by digital technology is increasing Three quarters said that student ability to focus is going down. Almost 90% of teachers claim that the number of students with emotional and social challenges has risen over the past three to five years. A U.S. study found that teenagers are at a much greater risk of suicide when they spend time on electronic devices. Specifically, three hours a day makes a teen 35% more likely than someone who spends less than an hour to commit suicide. And more than five hours a day, and teens are 71% more likely to commit suicide. Other studies suggest devices cause teens to lose sleep and that the ability to empathize with others goes up when children take a break from devices. And so in calling for Apple to make a change in some way by adding more experts to study this, researching this, implementing new tools to help parents, they say that 
doing so poses no threat to Apple. Because unlike other technology companies, Apple's business model is not predicated on excessive use of their products. But is that really true? Is Apple not concerned with people excessively using their products? Are they, like these investors suggest, interested in making us more responsible consumers of their products? Is there any hope that we have that they will implement changes to encourage us to use their products less? Well, the same entrepreneurs that were behind that boundless AI company designed to increase the addictive lure of these apps and technologies, well, they also tried to start an app on the side, I guess, to be a little bit more philanthropic with their time. No, this is repentance for their sins, Daniel. Well, it didn't go through. It was an app called Space. And the idea was that it would create a 12-second delay when users opened certain apps. The idea was that it would allow you to have a moment of zen before being flooded with this uh, information overload that is in our social media apps. And, well, they weren't allowed to put it on the store. Apple apparently told the entrepreneurs that it would not support any app that encouraged people to use the phone less. So who do we look to to save us from ourselves and the addictive nature of these applications, the vulnerable psychology of our brains, and a world where we live with a slot machine in our pocket? I don't think we should expect the CEO of Apple or the CEO of Facebook to willingly implement any change that would encourage us to use their products less. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, we are a profit-driven world and no one would willingly sacrifice profits, not when so much money is at stake. But, you know, we have talked in the past about how employees of companies that do bad things should stand up to those bad things. And, and sometimes they can have a positive impact and help steer their companies in better directions. There are some tech professionals who discuss the need for a professional code of ethics and public shaming of companies that abuse these tools to addict us. If there was some kind of professional code of ethics, it might give programmers and employees at these companies a little bit more power to stand up to their boss. Whereas right now, all they can do is say, I don't believe in this. But imagine if they could go to their employer and say, well, what you're asking us to do goes against the code of ethics that all of us fall under as part of the professional organizations that we're part of. Or, you know, imagine how much more power employees would have if they went to their boss and said, look, if we implement these types of tools and tactics, we will be publicly shamed and we might lose business. You know, it's possible that that could have some kind of marginal change in a positive direction. As optimistic as that is, Daniel, and as much as I want to believe in the power of organized labor, which is absolutely one of the great forces of change in our world, I think the globalized nature of the programming of these apps, of these social networks, makes that organization difficult or impossible. And I hope one day to be proved wrong about this, but we're not going to find the fixes for these problems coming from these companies themselves. Because the problem is the perverse incentives of this system. Yes, we know that these apps are making us sick, of damaging the way our brains work, of degrading our attention, of giving us stress. But the fact of the matter is, this is a cost levied on other people. And it's the side effect of extracting attention from us and converting that attention to ad revenue. And this is a profitable business. Facebook, Google, Netflix. These companies sit at the top of the stock market because of their success in converting our attention and our addictive natures into dollars. And as long as the profit incentive exists for this kind of exploitation, these companies are going to continue to use every trick in the book, every addictive technique, and every customized AI to optimize this exploitation of attention for their bottom line. We will not find answers in regulation, in governments that are controlled in large part by the lobbyists of these groups. But fortunately, while we wait for labor to organize and take a stand for what's right to them and the rest of us, we as individuals have a lot of power with the effect that these addictive devices have on ourselves. And there's a lot of things that we can individually do until the systems that create these perverse incentives can be fixed by us and others. David, real quick, before we get onto some practical ideas for how people can deal with these technologies, I think it's interesting what you said about how these companies extract our attention. Uh, there was a researcher at University of South Carolina who suggests that in this economic environment that we find ourselves in, which we've talked about in the past of declining real wages at the same time that productivity is soaring and that we are working more than ever. Well, this researcher suggests that part of the reason that this productivity is not being captured in the wages of workers 
is because some of this productivity is being driven by our social media use. So as we become more stressed and we work more and more and we're expected to respond to emails at all times of the day, we find breaks more and more often in these social media apps. But it is that very activity of engaging with these things that is driving the profits and revenues for these companies, then reinvesting that money to get us even more addicted. So I think I would have to agree with you that there's probably not a lot of hope for these companies changing their practices. But like I mentioned, in the meantime, we can take our devices in our hand and make actionable changes on our own lives and encourage others around us to do the same. So for starters, uninstall these apps. Odds are you don't need to check them on the phone. If you can resist it, take them off. As we mentioned in some of these studies, disable your push notifications and instead batch your viewing. Maybe take a time once or twice a day to open Instagram, check your feed, set a time limit and set it down. That's it. That's all you need. We mentioned in the past that maybe setting your device screen to grayscale to the accessibility options decreases the amount of interaction that you have with your device. Every time you pick it up, it's black and white. It's less of a joy to use. It's less addictive. The choice of red for those notification icons doesn't have an effect on you because it's just a subtle shade of gray and you're that much less likely to click on it. Or if you do keep some notifications, only keep those for direct human communication. So these are your text messages. These are phone calls. Don't keep your phone next to you in bed. This is something I try to do is I actually charge my phone in the bathroom next to my bed so that it's in a completely different room and I actually have to get out of bed in the morning to turn it off. But it prevents me from just keeping myself up, harming my ability to get a good night's rest even more. It's beyond the scope of this episode, but it's also a great idea not to have these screens in front of your face before you go to bed. The blue light that is the typical light that comes out of a phone or laptop We'll mess with your circadian rhythm and make it that much harder for you to fall asleep. Try and set aside maybe an hour before you go to bed that's electronics free. Though this is a good thing to do just continuously throughout your life is schedule your electronic use. And every now and then try taking a little digital detox. Leave your phone at home. See what it feels like to go about your day not even having the option to check your phone. You may find that your stress decreases a little bit. And if you're really worried about missing out on social connections, maybe just let your closest friends and loved ones know that you'll be unavailable for half of the day or however long it is. Also, make use of your phone's do not disturb mode. This is a great way to disable notifications temporarily while you need to concentrate and instead turn your attention elsewhere where it's more needed. There are so many things you can do to help detox yourself from these devices to heal your attention and end this addiction. And they get easier as time goes on. And it's silly to talk about social media and phones as an addiction, but it really is. And we all suffer from it, at least in part. Just like the sugar that we talked about before in that episode, just like many of us have with caffeine, these are real addictions. They have actual impacts on our health. And though they're common and accepted, doesn't mean that we should tolerate them, doesn't mean that we should encourage them, and instead we should talk to each other about them be conscious of the effects they have on our health, and help each other work towards a healthier world. Beyond the practical, David, I think the biggest thing I got out of this show is that I have a different relationship with my phone now. I mean, it's still hard for me to break away from some of these physical habits, but the way I view my phone has shifted a little bit, where before I just kind of saw it as this tool, this very neutral thing that I can retrieve the information I want. Sometimes it helps me out, giving me notifications of important things. But now I see my phone a little bit less as a neutral tool and more kind of as an adversary, to be honest with you, that it's trying to suck me in. It's not an accident. It's trying to get my attention. And I don't want my life to be ruled by such a thing. I want to regain a sense of control and of choice to say, I'm only going to retrieve the information that I want to retrieve when I want it. I'm not going to look at my phone just because I feel like I have nothing better to do. I'm going to try as I go forward to be a little bit more intentional, to put myself back in the steering control of this crazy, crazy digital technology ride. As always, that's a lot to think about. You can read about all these topics and much more on our website at ashesashes.org. A lot of time and research goes into making these shows possible, and we will never use ads to support this show. So if you appreciate it and would like us to keep going, you, our listener, can support us by giving us a review and recommending us to a friend. 
And in fact, you made it to the end of the show, so you get this special reward. Good job. Gamify Ashes. Gamify the world. That's right, David. Our lucky listeners, if you share this with a friend, if you share Ashes Ashes with a friend, send them an email, send them a message on your phone, and you take a screenshot and you email that to us, well... You're going to get a point. One point for every share. And we're going to have a leaderboard on the website associated with this episode. And if you want to make it on that leaderboard and get to the top of the scoreboards, get that first place prize, you're going to have to share this episode. So email us the links or screenshots of your sharing. Show us how many likes, upvotes, comments, whatever it is that you get. And we'll count all those, add them up, level you up. Rack up those points. And soon you'll be at the top of the Ashes Ashes Gaming Board. And and I mean, we're making fun of the gamification of the world here, but we actually do have a prize and we'll send it out to to whoever wins this after however much time that we feel uh, is, is relevant to have passed. Make it to the top. First top three will get a prize free of charge. It's going to be great. So send your submissions down to our email address, contact at ashesashes.org. Can you make it to the top? You can also find us on our social media at Ashes Ashes Cast or on Reddit at r slash Ashes Ashes Cast. Next week, we're going to turn to something way heavier and darker like you would expect from us. But don't worry, we'll get through it together. Until next time. This is Ashes Ashes. Bye. Bye-bye.